ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Hello and welcome. It's our bonus Q&A episode of Books of the Year, which you get for free uh, as part of your subscription package. Yeah, you do get it for free. Yeah, yeah that's right, because it's on the internet. Uh, uh, we're in the studio with writer, actor and podcaster Carrie Ed Lloyd, uh, who you will have heard on our previous episode talking about her book, You Are Not Alone, A New Way to Grieve. So this is, these are the questions coming to you. Are you ready? Yep, okay. ready. Carrie Ed Lloyd, what is the last book that you really really enjoyed well it was the last one i read actually so i'm having a bit of a you know and you've got like book joy sounds a bit of a cop-out it does no no because it doesn't happen honestly Uh, well let me let me tell you (laughs) shirley hazard the great fire incredible in incredible i and i want to talk about this because i had never heard of shirley hazard till last year right no one's heard of her no i'm just writing her name down shirley hazard she is australian by birth but she kind of she they moved to hong kong and she lived in new york for a bit she was really big like i think sort of 60s 70s and then this book the great fire took 20 years to write it won the orange book of the year maybe oh i'm getting that wrong it won a prize um and she, I was, a, I am a massive Hilary Mantel fan. So I've been okay. slightly grieving for like, what am I going to do without Hills? How are we going to cope? Picked up Shirley and was like, oh my God, this is very similar. Why have I never heard of her? Why is no one talking about her? She, she is, she's so good. So she did a lot of books in the 70s. This one took 20 years to write, The Great Fire. And it's about the sort of fallout of World War Two. So it's in like, Peace, peace, inverted commas, has happened, but about basically like how everything was still awful. So, and it's kind of set in Japan. So there's this um, an English spy soldier who's who's been sent to Japan to kind of like tidy up the mess, basically. But also like he goes back to London, and London is full of like just you know completely bombed out. No one's got anything, and everyone is had this moment of like, are we going to be okay? War's over, and they're not. They're all completely traumatized. Everything's awful, and everyone's left thinking, what did we just do? And really, the plot is quite thin. <laughs> it's you know this guy sort of falling in love with someone. That's it really. But it, it it the writing, the level of detail on the writing is extraordinary, and the way, particularly for me, the way she writes about Australia and New Zealand. 
in that level of like acerbicness that only someone from that country, their own country, can destroy their own people. <laughs> I have never really read before. <laughs> I've read a lot of English people being very critical and acerbic and funny about English people, but I hadn't read it from that sort of other standpoint. Um, and yeah, I, it, honestly, it's incredible. And I, I just don't know why she's not massively known because okay. uh, she's The Great incredible. Fire, Shirley Hazard. Shirley Hazard, The Great Fire. Uh, is there a fire? Or is that just, I mean, the Great Fire is World War Two. Oh right, okay, yeah. okay. And he's in Japan and he's in Hiroshima, so it's kind of like the Great Fire is like we've all been, you know, everybody has been touched by this awful situation, and like for you know from Hong Kong to China to Japan, Australia, New Zealand, like like everybody is having to deal with what they've all just been through. I'm intrigued by that premise of being in, let's say, London just after the war because. I've read books that are set in Germany just yes. after the yeah, yeah. Second World War, where where you already know, get going into the book, you're like, oh, right, I pretty much know what, what's yeah, coming yeah. here. But being in London and it not being, you know, we've won the war. No, it's amazing. A complete, it's, that's, a, that's a really interesting... He goes back to visit a lover and uh, she's got, what is it, like wood pigeon. She's like, oh, someone got us a wood pigeon. There's no food. It's like everyone's catching birds wow. and there's no heat. And like he's describing walking down Piccadilly and like he describes the houses and how, you know, you used to pay a lot of money to be able to see Green Park and it's just like they all had to leave and it's all just rubble. And now he's, you know, looking at this house being like, wow, that was once you'd fight for that view of Green Park and now it was the most dangerous place to be. And I particularly enjoyed reading it post-pandemic because it, it really, I felt a kind of resonance of like, Oh, everything's fine, is it? Well, it doesn't feel fine. It feels still quite weird. Like, we just went through something, so I think it's a particularly good book to read now. Okay, so next question. Where do you most enjoy writing? Do you have somewhere where you go to write? And do, is there a time of day when you will write? <laughs> well, it's been completely ruined by children. <laughs> completely. I'm a real night owl. I like working right, you know, starting at like nine o'clock, going to like half one, two. That's why my brain wakes up and I'm not allowed to do that because somebody will wake me up at half five. So I've had to like reprogram my brain to work in the day and that's not always that successful. <laughs> so I'm quite I'm quite a faffer. I take ages to start. Um, I work from home. I just have a desk from home and or I need a good library. Not any library. I just have a good vibe. Do you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> It can't just be like some libraries are crap. They just like there's books there, but the vibe is not writing. The vibe is like old people warming themselves. That's fine, but that's uh -huh. not what I need to write. Um, the London Library. I w worked. Uh, I wrote a lot of you know known here there because that is just incredible. That's just so completely everybody's writing. So you go into it and you're like, I couldn't possibly not do work here. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, but then if everyone's maybe they're writing faster than you, it's like sitting next to someone in an exam who's writing furiously, <laughs> yeah, 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 and you yeah. can't actually start. Um, <clears throat> it's good London Library because it's lots of people, individual desks, lots of people piled up books, lots of people staring, just staring and thinking, and then occasionally writing. So yeah, oh, I can do not, that. Yeah, oh, we yeah, definitely yeah. do a lot of staring. Yeah, no yeah, yeah. Um, do you prefer to write on your own? The reason <laughs> the reason I'm asking is that you've worked on lots of scripts for TV and the stage, which is more collaborative, yeah. I would imagine, but this is something that you've sat down and typed away yourself. I actually don't. <laughs> I prefer to work with people. As a natural improviser, I'm all about collaboration. Like That's my favourite thing to do, is have a room with people and everyone chucking stuff in, and then you get something that only exists because you know those three heads at that time came together, and as a little bit of everybody. But um, 
I knew this book I had to write by myself. So I fought it for a long time. I kind of was like, no, I'm not going to do it. It's too much. And I had to kind of train myself to collaborate in my head, which was a lonely process and slow, but I did get there. So now I think I can write on my own. But I do love working with people. It's just so much fun and lots of distraction and someone makes a joke and it's like you get a break from the writing bit. Whereas I find if I write by myself, I'm like, I'll go on Instagram for five minutes and then it's 15 minutes and then it's 20 yeah. minutes. And you can order shoes. Yeah. Oh, my God, the internet. Yes, I know. What's that famous Zadie Smith quote? Like, who put shopping and the the world or every answer next to the machine you write on like we need typewriters that would be yeah absolutely absolutely. let's let's switch to reading so when it comes to books um how i suppose this question is how ruthless are you if you are halfway through a book so halfway through it's like 500 pages you're over 250 pages through will you finish it whether you're enjoying it or not oh it depends on the depends on the book I used to ruthlessly finish everything. I honestly could say pre-children, I had stopped about two books in my life. That just to, I was like, this is unreadable. But post-children, time is limited and you're tired. <laughs> and if you're like falling asleep with your eyes closing, thinking this is rubbish. So now I'm a bit more ruthless. But if I'm over halfway, I'd probably finish it. I'd probably give it a go. Yeah. And also I have had books where you've got to the end and you thought, well, I'm glad I did that. It did change and I wouldn't have wanted to judge it. And Hilary Mantel, who I love, I've recommended that to so many people. They go, oh God, I can't get to it. I'm like, you have to get into Mm. it. Iris Murdoch is another one I absolutely love. And Iris is like the first 300 pages, unbearable, unbearable, unbearable. (laughs) The first 300 pages? Yeah. You've got to get through. How many American shows have people said to you, you need to watch six episodes and then it's the funniest thing? And we're all happy to do that. And worse, sometimes it's like, by the time it gets to series two, I'm not not going to make it to series two. Life's too short. I can't (laughs) sit through a whole series. But then you do and you're like, God, this is so funny. 300 pages? Maybe that's an exaggeration. 200? I wouldn't wouldn't stick 300. I would not. The Sea, the Sea is one of my favourites. And the first bit, you're like, what, Iris, what's going on? This is so slow. But it's like, it's a different pace. So, like, if you're willing to, like, it's like getting in a river. You have to get in that river and float down. It's no point, like, splashing around, being like, no, this is wrong. It's like the author is giving you her tone and you have to go with it. Whereas if you just keep fighting it, then you miss out on... Iris Murdoch. So you're more understanding than I am because I... Maybe I, I, I am, yeah. I've always, Everybody is more understanding. They are, they are. Because I will just... I'm afraid it's your fault. You, you as the uh, writer, yeah. it's your fault if I'm not engaged after 50 pages. We have a question oh, okay. We have tough, a question now tough. in the form of a voice note Okay. from a friend of yours, comedian and author Sarah Pascoe. Oh. Hello, this is Sarah Pascoe and I've got a question for Carrie Ed Lloyd. I loved your book and I loved how helpful it is for people at whatever stage of grieving they're at, or maybe not at all, but all of us know someone who's grieving. And actually, that's what my question is about. How do, how do we make sure, how do we get better at supporting people who are going through grief without projecting our own experiences of grief onto their situation? You know, that whole, oh, I know exactly what you're going through, when we often don't, or it's very unhelpful to have people go like, oh, yeah, I get it when everyone has such different relationships with the people that they care about. So how do we do that, please? (laughs) 
Sarah Pascoe, clearly the busiest person in the world because yeah. the only time she could find to record the note was... Walking to the tube. Going to the shops <laughs> yeah. uh, or something like Probably that. Probably walking her dog or her baby at the same time as well. So, yeah. She's but it's true, there girl. are some people who project themselves into every conversation. Oh, yeah, yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. It yeah. happened to me. Yeah, but yeah. But what do you say? I mean, you've probably said this to Sarah before, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. as, as she's your mate. But, yeah, hmm. she's, one of my, she's my best pal. Um it's really hard and I think it's a really common thing to do and I only learned not to do it through doing the grief cast and through speaking to lots of people because I used to do the same like oh yeah well my dad died so I understand how you feel with your sister dying and then you just have to understand that every grief is unique and you can understand the pain but you can't understand the nuances of that pain so I think that's if you can separate those things and Julia Samuel is amazing amazing grief psychotherapist she wrote an incredible book called Grief Works which is so so useful she always says like you, you mustn't say i know exactly how you feel because you don't you you don't know exactly how it, how someone feels you could say or oh, i think i know how you feel or i felt like this but it's again it's the nuance of language being careful not to assert yourself and be like Yes, yes. Well, and I've had people do it to me. Well, my dad died when um, I was 50. And, and you think, well, that's really different to being 15. Sorry. I had someone say to me once, he was like, well, my dad was 50. I mean, like, well, I'm not making a podcast about it. <laughs> <laughs> people are weird. People love to say things wow. to you. I was like, yeah, but I was 15. He was like, well, oh, you know, everyone's dad dies eventually. I, I thought, <laughs> that's well, true. Yeah. I thought, okay, me doing this and me talking about it is obviously very triggering for you. But somebody did not give you any empathy and now you're doing it to me. So I think it's important to just try. <laughs> that was a really weird, that was a weird evening, guys. Um, to try and just think, okay, I, I and ask. I think it's a thing to ask. To so say, how do you feel? If it was me, I might feel like this, but obviously I'm not you. So I'm just wondering, how do you feel yeah. now? Like your sister is has died and how are you feeling about it? And the other thing we always say is, how are you today? How are you today that's a nice simple question that someone grieving can ask rather than being like i know how you feel in another life um carrie so writer performer um comedian is where you are now but in another life is there another job that you could have seen yourself <laughs> involved in it would always been something like this is basically all i was gonna that's <laughs> really honestly i was always performing or writing or muck, mucking around it wasn't until I found improv when I was in my 20s that I was like oh I didn't realize this was a job I thought this is what I did just talking to myself pretending to be different people <laughs> like um so I don't think I'd be very good at, at much else I'm actually a very good producer I like to produce the, the grief cast myself uh -huh. so I probably would have ended up doing producing some producer listening now going, so the, really so there must have been a point before you realized oh i can make decent money from being a performer there must have been a point oh yeah where you, I, I was i was a terribly unsuccessful poor performer for a very long time this is still amazing to me man <laughs> myself and sarah pascoe went to university together and we did every job under the sun to try and get performing we were bus tour guides and i did school entertainment and i was a temp and yeah oh my god there's i did and i was bad at all of those things like, but you while you were doing those you're always in your head thinking i am going to be the thing that i am aiming for is always being a performer no there was, there yeah. was never a point where you thought and what i'm aiming to be is a no, biochemist I just, no i always wanted to have a job that was not going to an office nine to five that was the, the only thing that i had in my head because i was a temp and i did it and i was so bad at it and i was so awful i once they came over and they said um would you mind doing some photocopying gave me a huge pile and i said oh i would i don't want to do it <laughs> Because I thought it was a question. And she looked at me. I was a receptionist. 
And I and I thought, oh, she means I have to do it. Why didn't she just say I have to do it? So yeah, my goal was anything that didn't involve having to go to the same place every day, nine to five, because I knew I just was really bad at doing things the same every day. I just got, I was really a terrible receptionist. I used to bring my sewing in, just do sewing with my feet on the table. I'm, I'm in like, reception? In reception. Wow. Awful. People listening carefully would think it's the most unhealthy podcast I've listened to. <laughs> Because someone is sniffing. I know. I'm so sorry. I've got massive that's allergic reactions. Someone's coughing, and that's me. Uh, anyway, but thank you for sticking with us. Just finally, is and in one sentence, is because we're out of time. We're out of tape. There's no more tape uh, left. Sure, sure. Uh, on the is there a book that always cheers you up? Oh, um, Moomin's the Moomin books by Tova Janssen, and Moominland in winter is just it, it's a bit bleak, <laughs> but oh. there's a sense of joy to it. Because it's bleak the joy. Yeah, bleak joy. That's my vibe, Classic. guys. That's my vibe. Uh, you Are Not Alone is published by Bloomsbury. It's out now. Carrie, thank you very much indeed. Uh, remember, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email at any time. Books of the year at yahoo.com or you can find us on social media. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.